The Lord be with us as well as we continue on in 1 Corinthians. Help us, Lord, to see um, what you mean when you call us to give everything up for the sake of your gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are continuing on in 1 Corinthians. Um, and as always, if you have um, a Bible, uh, I encourage you to follow along. Uh, if you don't have one, obviously, you're, um, if you have an app on your phone, that works just fine. But there, there are Bibles there at the front uh, that you can definitely grab and use to follow along um, with us this morning. Um, so 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 9 now, um, and we are going to look at um, most of chapter 9. Uh, just because this is really one big thought that Paul has. Um, so we're going to look at chapter 9 and see what, that, um, what it means for us as followers of Jesus. So if you'll remember, um, as we've been going through Corinthians, we've been reminding ourselves of the, the sort of the overarching theme that Paul is trying to get across. And he lays it out in the first few chapters, and I'm hoping you're starting to remember it now. But the whole big idea is that what seems wise to the world is actually foolishness. And what seems foolish to the world is actually the wisdom of God. And the paradigm for this, of course, is the cross, right? That our Messiah was crucified. And for the world to look at that and see Christians and see them worshiping a, a crucified Savior, well, that looks pretty foolish to the world. But we know that God in His wisdom sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Because that was the only way a way could be made into the kingdom. It was the only way a way could be made to unite us to God. And so what is foolish in the eyes of the world is actually quite wise in the eyes of God. And so once he's laid that out, then he goes on and he's actually addressing concerns, very specific concerns that the Corinthians have asked him about, right? And the latest one, and we began talking about it last week, was um, can we eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? We sort of all agreed that that particular question does not seem quite as relevant to us as it might have to them. Um, but at the same time, uh, Paul actually seems less concerned about the food, eating the food sacrificed to idols. He seems more concerned about how the Corinthians are called to love one another. He has that great phrase, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So yes, you may have knowledge. You may be strong in your faith. You may know that eating a food sacrificed to idols um, is nothing, and it's certainly something you, as a follower of Christ, are, are welcome to do. You've got that knowledge. You know it. But that knowledge has made you puffed up. It's made you arrogant. And there are brothers and sisters among you who don't have that same knowledge, who if they follow down that path, if they eat this food sacrificed to idols, they're going to fall back into a trap of their pagan worship. And so actually what Paul is saying is these strong Corinthians are leading their brothers and sisters who they consider to be weak in their faith, they're, they're leading them away from Jesus. They're leading them away from the cross. And so Paul goes on to say at the end of the passage last week, right? He says, I am willing to become weak. Yes, I have this knowledge. Yes, I can identify with you so-called strong Corinthians. 
But I am willing to become weak. I'm willing to refuse to eat any meat whatsoever if it can benefit my brothers and sisters in the faith. If it causes them not to be led astray. And so that's sort of the, the main point he's trying to make here in chapter, in chapter 8. Is, is he is willing, and, and we, should probably consi- we should be willing as well, to give up what might be our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of strengthening them in their faith. And so that was chapter 8. Chapter 9 and 10 are also part of this argument, and, and so we're going to circle back around full circle when we get to chapter 10. But chapter 9 is actually, what, what Dave read today, is actually part of that same discussion. It feels like it's not, right, when, when you're reading it. It feels like, well, well, we've been talking about food sacrifice to idols, and now we're talking about um, whether Paul should accept um, payment for his... Um, for his preaching and pastoring to the Corinthians, this seems like um, we've moved on. But actually what Paul is doing is giving an illustration. He's sharing with them, for example, here is something I have given up for your sake. <clears throat> Here's something that I have agreed, um, something that could be due to me or owed to me that I'm willing to, to set down for the sake of the gospel. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. And the second part of um, <clears throat> this discussion on food and, and idols, Paul is illustrating um, this sacrifice, the giving up of oneself. He's illustrating that with a different example from his own life, his refusal to accept payment as a pastor to the Corinthians. Um, and he really reinforces really in quite a strong way the main point that, that as followers of Jesus, we are often going to be called to sacrifice for the sake of others. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at the first verse. Excuse me, chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. So um, let's just take a quick look. We'll read uh, 1 to... One to seven. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So Paul is going on to say that the, the strong, the so-called strong Corinthians, they have a right to eat and drink whatever they please. And now he's challenging anybody who would come up to him. You know, Paul has said, but I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not going to eat meat for the sake of my, my so-called weak brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's imagining a challenge. And he's saying, who would, who would challenge me there in verse 3? This is my defense to those who examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? So he's conceding. Yes, you have that right. You have that right to eat and drink. But he goes on to say... Um, do I not also have a right 
to, um, like the other apostles, who bring their spouses along with them when they go around preaching. So, so what is going on here, right? Well, um, Peter, he refers by name, and possibly Apollos and others, when they went around preaching and planning churches, apparently um, their family, or at least their wives, would, would come with them. And the reason they were able to do that is because they were getting paid um, for their services. So when they came to town, a collection would be taken up, and Peter would, would get a collection, and that's how he made his living. It's how he was able to bring his wife with them. And Paul is saying that is a perfectly fine and good, and that is the right way to do things. That is how it should be. But he goes on, right, and he says, um, Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And so what he's implying is that he and Barnabas, so Barnabas was his traveling partner, are working for a living. And by working, he doesn't mean pastoring. He means he's doing his pastoring, but he's also, Paul was called a tent maker. He made tents and he sold them, and that's how he made his living. And so Paul was saying, um, same right as Peter or Apollos. Barnabas and I certainly have that right to, to get paid, but, but we're choosing not to. We're choosing not to exercise that right. And so that's what I mean by this is an example where Paul is not exercising um, the right that um, he felt he could exercise. It was due to him. Um, so Paul has the right, there your first bullet point there, he has the right to compensation. He has the right to um, take a collection at the churches, just like the strong believers have the right to eat and drink whatever they please. These are rights. These are, these are things that are due to them, is what he's arguing at this point. And he goes on, because this is a choice um, that's hotly debated, I think, by the Corinthian church. In fact, if you read 2 Corinthians this has come a little bit to a head. I think, I think the Corinthians are a little embarrassed that their pastor, their leader, um, is actually not getting paid. Well, why would they be embarrassed? Well, any of the philosophers, we've talked about this, the, these traveling philosophers that drop in in these cities and, and teach and, and build up disciples, um, the way they get paid, there's one of a few ways. They either would get, um, take a collection right from their followers, and they would get paid that way, or they would have a patron in the town um, they believe in their ideas, and this patron would, would pay their salary. Um, some of them would, would be willing to go to work for a fa family to educate the children um, as part of, of their payment. Um, and others, um, very drastically, would actually be willing to, um, to beg in, uh, on the streets. They would beg for money. They, that's the only way they wanted to get paid, was to, to beg for money on the streets. And the other option was what Paul is doing. He's working as a tent maker. He has a separate, separate job while he's also preaching. This is hotly debated by the Corinthian church, and Paul really wants to drive this point home. He wants them to know that it is perfectly reasonable for them to support his ministry financially. And he talks about it in a couple of different ways. The first thing is um, he talks about, like we just said, um, his right is supported by... Um, or. This isn't a bullet point, but it was supported by the fact that, that other apostles were doing it. Um, but the second thing Paul gets into is that this right is supported by Scripture itself. So look at verses 8 to 12. Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
It is for oxen. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in the hope and thresher, thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim, do not we even more? So Paul's appealing to Scripture, right? He's saying this right is given to the preacher, is given to the pastor in Scripture, that he could expect um, an offering, a collection from his church. But he goes on. This was supported by Scripture, but this right is also supported by, um, by practice. So he's already pointed out um, Peter and other apostles, but he goes on and he talks about the, um, the, the Levites serving in the temple. We have not made use of this right, verse, um, end of verse 12, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. In verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So it is the practice, it's common practice in Jewish culture that those who are serving at the temple um, should receive compensation for that. And then he goes on as if he hadn't made his point already. It's kind of like the mic drop of his argument. Um, he's going to say, even our Lord Jesus told us that this should be expected and this is right. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaimed the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so he's built up a pretty big case that he is, is due, could expect some sort of offering from the Corinthian church, right? It's a pretty solid case, a pretty solid argument he's made here. Now, I think it's important for us at this point to pause and just remember that as Christians, we have rights and freedoms in Jesus that can actually ease our conscience and ease our burden, right? We have rights and freedoms in Jesus as Christians um, that ease our burdens and can ease our concerns. And so, for instance, the dietary restrictions that, that are part of um, the Old Testament scriptures, we, we know that those do not apply to, to Christians, that that has been fulfilled in Jesus. That's not something we um, have to concern ourselves with. Um, <clears throat> Sunday worship, right? Really, you should come to church on Sunday and worship the Lord as a, as a group and worship Him um, we can worship Him together as a community. But how many of you occasionally miss a Sunday service, right? I, raise your hand. I know you all do. Okay, thank you. Right? It happens. I'm not knocking on your door saying, hey, you need to be at church, right? There are, there are some freedoms we have in Jesus. We should want to be here, but sometimes we're going to miss. And the Lord is there and he understands. Now, there might be sometimes that you have to ask forgiveness for that, but, but God is gracious and good. We have a freedom as Christians, right, to be a part of the world, to be a part of the culture around us. We don't have to isolate ourselves. We don't have to, um, we don't have to separate from the world and not be a part of what's happening in it. We have the freedom and maybe even the responsibility to be a part of the world, to bear witness to it. These are all freedoms and rights that we have in Jesus. Then as Americans, right, we certainly have, we're big on our freedoms. We have our own secular freedoms as Americans. Um, 
There are things that, that we as Christians can do as, as Americans, as, as free people, um, that maybe are in a vacuum morally neutral. They're not good things. They're not bad things. They're just things that we have um, the ability to do, right? Um, we have the ability to own property if we can. I think that's in the, the Declaration of Independence, right? Um, these are freedoms we have. They're secular freedoms, but nonetheless, they're freedoms that have been given to us. And so one thing that we need to remember as Paul is arguing about his rights as an apostle is, is we all have freedoms and rights that have been given to us, and many of them have been given to us by God. This is an important thing to remember. We have these things, and they're gifts, and we should be thankful for them. But the point Paul is going to make now is going to twist all that upside down. Because what he's going to say is that he actually has the freedom to give up his rights. You hear that? He has the freedom to give up his rights. And that's exactly what he is doing. He does not take these rights that he's just described as a given for him in every circumstance. So let's read on. Um, verse 15. I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So he's saying, like, I haven't used these rights. And just to be clear, I'm not writing all this stuff to make you feel guilty or bad um, or to, to get you to start taking an offering for me. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, um, I'm not mentioning this um, to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, look at verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So Paul, in fact, gives up his freedom to become a servant for the sake of the gospel. Do you see that? He says, I have these rights, I have these freedoms, and I give them up for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. Um, that word servant is stronger than just like a servant. It's not quite um, slave as we think of slavery um, and has been part of the history of this country. Um, but it's certainly like an indentured sort of servitude or a, a bond servant. I have given up my freedom to become a bond servant, to become in service a servant to you for the sake of the gospel. And then he goes on. This is a rather famous passage, right? To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. This is a striking statement, right? Because Paul says elsewhere that he was um, the Jew of all Jews. Paul is, if anybody's a Jew, Paul was a Jew. Paul the Pharisee, right? Persecuting Christians. But once he's converted, that's not part of his identity anymore. He's a follower of Jesus. But he is willing to conform for the sake of bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. He's willing to do that. To a Jew, I became a Jew. To one 
under the law, I became as one under the law. Now, it's important actually to note this. Um, he said, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To the one under the law, I became as one under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now look at verse 22. What we're going to see is that Paul was willing to become weak so that the weak Corinthians might not stumble in their faith. Look at how he writes this, though. To the weak, I became weak. He doesn't say to the weak, I became as one who was weak. So to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. With these other ones, he said, you know, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to those outside the law I became as one outside the law. And all of them have a counterpoint, right? There's Jew and Gentile, there's law and, and no law. But for the weak, he doesn't say, I became as one who is weak. He doesn't also say to the strong, I became strong. He fully, there's this, in Paul's mind, this full identification with the weak. With those brothers and sisters in Corinth that were struggling, um, those brothers and sisters in Corinth who, um, who, who didn't know what to do with this food sacrifice idols, but they knew if they ventured down that path that that would be deadly for them. And Paul is willing to fully identify with them. I think here there is a clear emphasis, a clear emphasis for Christians with the lowest and most vulnerable among us to identify with them. This clear emphasis for us as followers of Jesus to identify fully with the lowest and most vulnerable among us. And that can be a hard thing to hear, right? But Paul is calling and he's willing to become weak for the sake of the weak, that he might win them for the gospel. And he doesn't mean, so in Corinth, the strong Christians and the weak Christians, they were both Christians. So it's not like he was saying he would become weak to win them for the first time to the gospel, although I think he would. I, I, I'm not saying that he wouldn't. Um, but what he's also saying is, I've become weak with them to keep them in the gospel, to keep them in the faith that he would come alongside them and, and so they might continue following Jesus and not get, get lost as followers of Christ. And so he's willing to fully identify. There's this emphasis on fully identifying with the lowest and most vulnerable among us in Paul's um, letter here. Is that not the gospel, right? Is that not the gospel? Jesus didn't become like a human, right? He didn't come down and be, oh, I'm just fully God, I'm just acting like a human, or I'm just looking like a human. He became man. God became man. He took on flesh. He experienced every temptation, every emotion, every sorrow, every struggle, every joy, every triumph, anything you've experienced, anything you can imagine, Jesus fully took that on. And he did it perfectly. 
and did it beautifully. And because he fully took it on, and because he did it perfectly, and because he did it beautifully, when he gave up his life, he was able to do so for the forgiveness of our sins. He was able to do so to bring us into the kingdom of God. He fully became man so that when he crossed through death into resurrected life, he was bringing us with him. That is the gospel. That is what's on offer day in and day out, that Jesus died for us. He became one of us and died for us, <clears throat> that we might live. And what Paul is saying is, I'm willing to model that. I'm willing to become as weak as I need to be, that I might win some for the gospel. And so this is a sacrifice that's modeled after that of our Lord Jesus, right? This is modeled after the sacrifice of Jesus, that Jesus would give up of himself for our sake. Now, we can't save anybody. We're not saviors. But in identifying with the weak among us, identifying with the most vulnerable, we can show them the kingdom more fully, right? That's what Paul is saying here. That's what he is calling us to do. And so then he closes with the discipline of sacrifice. And so if we have rights, and if we use our freedom to give up these rights, to sacrifice for others, um, what sort of discipline does it take to live a life like that? What does that, what does that look like? Uh, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself, myself should be disqualified. So he uses this analogy that, that we can understand, right? When runners run, when like elite athletes run, they're training for something, right? Their run means something. It's intentional. They're not just going out about and, and running around all willy-nilly. They have a plan and they have a goal. Or, um, or a boxer, when a, when a boxer is boxing and practicing, I mean, you've seen, you've seen videos. Maybe some of you all have done some boxing before. You know there's some intentionality behind it, right? How you control your body, how you move, even how you stand. Um, there's very intentionality to be the best you can at that. What Paul is saying is that for following Jesus, it takes some intentionality. It takes some understanding. I was reading a commentary by Richard Hayes, and he said, he said this about this passage. The Christian life is not an orgy of self-gratification, but a disciplined life focused on things that really matter ultimately. Mm. Things that matter ultimately ultimate things. That is the focus of the Christian life. It's, I love that phrase. It's very, um, um, uh, very eye-opening. The Christian life is not an orgy of self-gratification. In the Corinthians context, that means a lot, right? But it is a focused life, a life focused on ultimate things, a life focused on the kingdom of God, a life focused on bringing others into that kingdom, a life focused on the cross, right? 
the center of, of our forgiveness and redemption and, and the thing we need to remind ourselves of daily, right? You can hear these passages from Paul and you're like, wow, I've got a lot of work to do. And, and what Paul ultimately is going to say is, well, the very first thing you should be doing day in and day out is remembering that you are loved and saved by Jesus. When that is the first thing we remember, this ultimate thing that Christ loves us and died for us, then it just makes sense that our lives start to look like that. There's some intentionality behind this that Paul is calling us towards. And so Paul acts with intentionality and discipline to reinforce his gospel message. Intentionality and discipline in his life reinforces the words that are coming out of his mouth. So, a couple of things um, that you can bring home with you, I hope. The first one is this. True freedom, so true freedom is found in the giving up of our rights. Y'all got that? True freedom is found when we give up our rights, when we give up our freedoms. Um, Paul talks about that in Galatians as well. He talks about, um, it's for freedom Christ has set us free, but he goes on to say that, that true freedom is found in serving Jesus and serving others. And so that if, if, we, if our focus is, oh, I can do that because it's my right, or I can do that because it's my freedom. And, and we hear people objecting and saying, look, this is really challenging for me um, to simply dismiss that out of hand because this is our right. Suggests to me that we're not focusing on the right things. We can at least have a conversation about it, right? If somebody is saying, this is testing my faith, this is challenging me the way you're acting, then at the very least, at the very minimum, we must go back and revisit this and say, am I harming my brother and sister in Christ by demanding this right? Because it is only when we give up our rights, when we're willing to give up our freedoms, that we actually find true freedom in Christ. Um, the second thing, I just label this one, um, talk the talk and walk the walk. Talk the talk and walk the walk, right? You've, you've heard that expression before, that, um, that you can say things that mean this, but then your life looks like it means this. So they're, they're opposite, they're different. And what Paul is saying here is, um, is, I'm calling you to follow Jesus who gave his life for you. And I'm calling you to do that by giving your life for others, by serving others. Um, and not only am I just going to say that, but I'm going to show that. I'm going to give up this right. I'm going to give up this freedom that I might serve you and serve Jesus. And so if we're going to talk the talk, we've got to be able to walk the walk. And then the final thing, um, like we just mentioned a little while ago, and I definitely want you to remember this one. Jesus became weak for you. Okay, so the Christian faith is not one of strength. The Christian faith is not one of building yourself up and building up your faith so you can be strong and stand before God. The Christian faith is recognizing your weakness, recognizing that we've all fallen short, recognizing that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy of the kingdom. Nothing that we can do to defeat evil. Nothing that we can do to defeat death. It is a posture of weakness. 
And then the reality is that Jesus became weak, that we might be made strong. That Jesus became one of us, that we might be made strong, that we might walk into the kingdom of God, that we might share in his resurrected life. But it's not because we're strong people. And so if we say, oh, I'm strong, right? I, I got it all figured out. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. You're very weak. You need me. It's okay. Just own it, right? Live it out. Because in our weakness, Jesus shows up. In our weakness, he identifies with us. And in our weakness is when he makes us strong. And so Paul's got quite this complex argument, right? Well, should we eat food sacrificed to idols? Well, um, maybe, but let's talk about something else. What is, the, what is going on underneath? Well, what's going on underneath is how do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and how do we love the world around us? And one of the ways we do that is by willing to give up for the sake of the gospel. And that's where he's left us with here now at the end of chapter 9, that we would give up for the sake of following Jesus. As we get into chapter 10 in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start... Um, looking back to, um, to this idea of idols in the first place and how we should probably do, we do well to avoid them even if we have the right to, to, to eat those, that food anyway. But, but we'll get to that, um, maybe not next week, but the week after. And so my friends, um, may we be a people who are willing to give up, to give up um, for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. And the reason we can do that is because Jesus gave so much up for us. Let us pray. Lord, you are good and gracious to us. Um, we thank you for the circumstances that have led to this letter to the Corinthians that have given us so much um, godly wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that the reality of your son Jesus becoming weak for us would, would sink deeply into our hearts. That it would so marinate in us, that it would become part of who we are. That we would embrace a life um, of walking weekly with Jesus. And we might do so for the sake of others and for the sake of your gospel. We ask all this in his holy and precious name. Amen.